Are we more immortal than Caesar? Ivan thinks so. Quote, If I had to be like Caesar and die, I would have been aware of it. An inner voice would have told me, but there hasn't been anything like that on the inside. I've always thought, and all my friends have too, that we're not the same as Caesar. And now look what's happened, he said to himself. It can't be. It can't be. But it is. How can it be? What's it all about? I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of November's book The Death of Ivan Ilyich by Leo Tolstoy published in 1886. So each month I take a book I've never read, split it in two and discuss each half. I'll do a first impressions summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Beware, there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes. So please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So this episode is all about the second half of the death of Ivan Ilyich from chapter six on page 61. There's no bad language in the podcast, but there are adult themes in the novel, in particular death and dying, as the title suggests. So, if you recall from the opening, Ivan Ilyich, married with an important job, is beginning to feel very ill. I think he's on his way out. Well, spoiler alert, he was dead at the beginning of the novel, so I think we know where this is going. He thinks of the syllogism, quote, Julius Caesar is a man, men are mortal, therefore Caesar is mortal. It always seemed to him to be true, only when it applied to Caesar, certainly not to him. I mentioned his astonishment that he was mortal like Caesar in the opening. Ivan is realising that he's been living in a fantasy land where death doesn't exist and he is now facing up to his own mortality. More on that later. Quote, Everything that once had protected him by hiding and eliminating any awareness of death was unable to perform that function now. In these latter days, Ivan Ilyich spent most of his time in trying to get back to the earlier ways of feeling that had protected him from death. He would say to himself, I must get down to some work. When all said and done, it's what I've been living for. I think that Ivan here is admitting to himself that he's been living as a means to an end. He makes an interesting reference to a previous fall that's passed over unnoticed. It's almost as if his love of fine decor and paraphernalia of the world has caused his illness. Listen, quote, Sometimes in these latter days he would go into the drawing room that he had furnished, the very room where he had had his fall, the room which, it was bitterly amusing to reflect, he had given his life to furnish because he knew his illness had started with that bruise. And, flicking back to page 34, we have the very innocent remark, On one occasion, climbing a stepladder to show a dull-witted upholsterer how to hang the draperies, he slipped and fell, though he was strong and agile enough to hold on, and all he did was bump his side on a window frame knob. The bruising hurt for a while, but it soon passed off. Wow. Who had just realised these seemingly mundane words were of such import? Although, was that really the cause of his illness? It's amazing how the human mind can latch on to cause and effect. There has to be a reason of him dying, and this is the one that he has latched onto. It's also interesting that metaphorically, the cause of his death is likely due to his love of objects, stuff of the world, and the fact that he had to micromanage his situation that he felt he could do much better, i.e. hanging the curtains correctly. He thinks, quote, I've lost my life here on this curtain, my battleground. How stupid. 
He also seems to have fussed over very trivial things like the order of photographs in an album. From the description, it sounds like his daughters treated the photographs in his album as fun recollections to pour over and experience. But to Ivan, the photograph album represents an object, an expensive object, rather than a living document of a life in progress. Listen to this as an example of his behaviour and his interior world. Quote, Sometimes when he went into the drawing room, he would notice a scratch in a lacquered tabletop left by something sharp. Looking for the cause, he would find it in the decorative bronzework of an album with one edge bent up. He would pick up the album, an expensive one, which he had compiled with loving care, annoyed at the carelessness shown by his daughter and her friends. It was torn in places and some of the photographs were upside down. He would go to a lot of trouble sorting out and bending the bronzework back into place. Now, as I mentioned in my previous podcast, Ivan seems to really invest heavily in the paraphernalia of the world, things that are not important, the exterior of the photo album, rather than what's really important, the photographs, the representation of an actual life, not a veneer. Perhaps his looming death will cause him to reevaluate what is important in his world. Let's watch this space. Now, Gerasim helps the invalid Ivan goes to the toilet and he is such a contrast to Ivan. Gerasim is his kind of manservant. He's a quiet man, a polite man and seems to take enjoyment from every moment rather than this doleful brooding Ivan where everything is a means to an end. He helps Ivan, quote, easily, willingly and with the kindness that Ivan Ilyich found moving. Health, strength and vitality and all other people were offensive to Ivan Ilyich. Only Gerasim's strength and vitality gave him comfort rather than distressing him. Gerasim really seems to be the polar opposite of Ivan. Hopefully Ivan will learn from this Saint Gerasim. Now we go into a monologue from the implied author about how Ivan believes that everyone is lying to him about his illness, telling him he'll get better. We've already seen how Ivan has lied to himself, how he has laid the blame for the pain in his side on falling and banging his side. I'm definitely on the side of his family and friends at the moment. He will surely get better. He's being morose and pessimistic. He's projecting this doomed future onto himself. Pull your socks up, Ivan. You may get run over by a bus tomorrow, so stop your dwelling on your situation. Okay, maybe the bus is unlikely in 1899, but you get my point, I hope. Or maybe he genuinely does feel this is the end and that he is having to put up with all these niceties that Gerasim is the only person who is acknowledging his death. Gerasim says to his master, quote, We all got to die one day. Why shouldn't I give you a hand? Now, I may be ultimately wrong, but I'm really hoping this will not be the cause of his death. The author has manipulated us to think that it is. In the opening chapters, I want Ivan to be exposed as a self-centred, egocentric buffoon, which he is. Full stop. Do you agree? Now, on reflection, I think that perhaps Ivan is being truthful to himself about his situation. And as the chapter progresses, I believe this more and more. Listen. Quote, here is Ivan Ilyich wanting to weep, wanting to be cuddled and have tears shed over him. In comes his colleague Shebek, and instead of weeping and getting some tenderness, Ivan Ilyich puts on a solemn and serious face, looks thoughtful and from sheer habit not only comments on the significance of a decision handed down by the Court of Cassation, but goes on to defend it strongly. It was this living a lie all around him and within him that did most to poison the last days in the life of Ivan Ilyich. It was this living a lie. The author is making it very obvious that this will ultimately be the cause of Ivan's death. 
Did you notice that switch to the present tense? Quote, here is Ivan Ilyich. It's a powerful sentiment made even more powerful by that switch of viewpoint. We're in the room with him, not just spectating from a distance. So we have, I believe, really what is the central question here of the novel. How are you expected to cope with the truth of a situation when all around you are unwilling to see this truth? Anyway, the doctor arrives. Ilyich feels he's been lied to by him. His wife enters and she says, quote, He just won't do as he's told. He forgets to take his medicine. And the worst thing is he will be there in a position that must be bad for him with his legs up. She describes how he got Gerasim to hold his legs up for him. The doctor gave a sweetly condescending smile. Can't be helped. He seemed to be saying these sick people do have silly ideas. His whole family discussed going to the theatre. He reflects on his daughter, whose body is the polar opposite to his. Quote, in came his daughter dressed up to the nines and exposed young body while his body was causing him so much suffering and she was flaunting it, healthy and strong, obviously in love. She had no time for the illness, suffering and death that were marring her happiness. They see that Ivan is upset and, quote, everyone was becoming terrified that the living lie demanded by propriety would somehow be shattered and seen by everyone for what it was. When they had gone, Ivan Ilyich seemed to feel easier. The lie had gone, gone away with them, but the pain was still there. That same pain, that same feeling of dread made sure that nothing was harder, nothing easier. Everything was worse. Once again, the minutes passed one after another, then the hours one after another. It was always the same, endlessly, and the inevitable end itself was all the more horrible. Ivan feels terribly lonely. He reflects on his life and the happy times and he realises that they were all in his youth and that everything that he'd been striving for in recent years had just made him unhappy. Quote, as if I had been going downhill when I thought I was going uphill. That's how it was. In society's opinion, I was heading uphill, but in equal measure, life was slipping away from me and now it's all over. Nothing left but to die. He realises that he may have been living the wrong kind of life, but as soon as he does think this, quote, he would instantly remember how proper his life had been and dismiss such a bizarre notion. And in feeding on this idea of regret, he is sadly continuing to live this wrong kind of life. Tolstoy also deftly showing that the kind of life that society might approve for us isn't necessarily the right kind of life that we should be leading. Another major question then that Tolstoy raises in this novel, how should we live our life? Possibly not the way Ivan has and is continuing to live. Anyway, Ivan, nearing death, asks numerous questions about life, all with pretty bleak answers, such as, quote, what is this torture for? And the answer... It's just there, it's not for anything. He recalls the happier moments of his childhood. Quote, the further he went back in time, the more life there was, more goodness in life, more life itself. He recalls tearing his father's briefcase and being punished only for his mother to bring him tarts. And this really mirrors that anger that he had for his daughters damaging his precious photo album. Had he forgotten what it was like to be a child, being a bit of a hypocrite, he still reflects that his life has been fastidious and therefore it could have been wrong the way he lived his life. I think he's got to turn it around right now. Stop dwelling on the unhappy aspects of your past, Evan. They're likely false, made up memories anyway. Remember that great saying, Evan, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Anyway, he continues to worry about the life that he has led rather than the life he is currently living. He worries that perhaps he has lived it wrongly. 
for bleep's sake, Ivan, you can't change that now, old B. Quote, it occurred to him that what had once seemed a total impossibility, he had not lived his life as he should have done, might actually be true. It occurred to him that the slight stirrings of doubt he had experienced about what was considered good by those in the highest positions, slight stirrings that he had immediately repudiated, that these misgivings might have been true and everything else might have been wrong. His career, the reordering of his life, his family, the things that preoccupy people in society and at work, all of this might have been wrong. He made an attempt at defending these things for himself, and suddenly he sensed the feebleness of what he was defending. There was nothing to defend. But instead of making peace with that thought, it drives him into even more anger and pain. This is the cause of that unbridled screaming for three days. Okay, I didn't like poor Ivan, but this author, gee, he hates Ivan, and all he stands for and is going to make him suffer. Tolstoy, please. Anyway, it's possibly the most beautiful ending in any novel I have ever read, and I will not spoil it for you. Suffice to say, Ivan realises that all his fears were fantasies. There is no death. A beautiful, beautiful novel that has left me incredibly moved. Every human has a heart of gold deep down, and Ivan, aside all my snarking about him, certainly has his. I'm really sorry, Ivan. I judged your exterior too harshly, and I forgot to see the real yo. Okay, reality check, Roger. Stop it. Now, how did I feel about that novel? It was incredibly moving, I think, especially the ending, which I will not give away. The novel raises the interesting idea of death and the nature of mortality. Man often believes he's invincible. He's tricked himself to cope with the fragility of life. Are we more immortal than Caesar? Ivan thinks so. Quote, All his life, the syllogism he had learned from Kizaveta's logic. Julius Caesar is a man, men are mortal, therefore Caesar is mortal. It always seemed to him to be true only when it applied to Caesar, certainly not to him. There was Caesar the man and man in general, and it was fair enough for them. But he wasn't Caesar the man, and he wasn't man in general. He had always been a special being, totally different from all the others. He had been Vanya with his mum and his papia, with Vitya and Vlodya with his toys, and the carriage driver, then little Katya, Vanya with all the delights, sorrows and raptures of childhood, boyhood and youth. Did Caesar have anything to do with the smell of that little striped leather ball that Vanya had loved so much? Was it Caesar who had kissed his mother's hand like that? And was it for Caesar that the silken folds of his mother's dress had rustled the way they did? Was he the one who had rebelled at law school over the provision of snacks? Had Caesar been in love like him? Could Caesar chair a session like him? Yes, Caesar is mortal and it's all right for him to die, but not me, Vanya, Ivan Ilyich, with all my feelings and thoughts. It's different for me. It can't be me having to die. That would be too horrible. What a powerful and interesting idea, comparing himself to Caesar. I really, really enjoyed this book. It was quite dark especially the ending but then the very ending there was this beautiful ray of light that shone out from the book i'd love to know what you thought of the book please write and let me know your thoughts i think the novel ultimately asked the question how are you expected to cope with the truth of a situation when all around you are unwilling to see this truth and i think it poses some very very interesting questions forces you to think about life and death Thank you very much for that. I'd like to now talk a little bit about the next book that I'm going to be reading. That's The Awakening by Kate Chopin. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to chapter 20 on page 93. I'll read the opening part of the book and give you my first impressions. 
A green and yellow parrot which hung in a cage outside the door kept repeating over and over, Allez-vous en, allez-vous en, sapistri, that's all right. He could speak a little Spanish and also a language which nobody understood unless it was the mockingbird that hung on the other side of the door whistling his fluty notes out upon the breeze with maddening persistence. Mr Pontellier, unable to read his newspaper with any degree of comfort, arose with an expression and an exclamation of disgust. He walked down the gallery and across the narrow bridges which connected the Lebrun cottages one with the other. He had been seated before the door of the main house. The parrot and the mockingbird were the property of Madame Lebrun, and they had, had the right to make all the noise they wished. Mr Pontellier had the privilege of quitting their society when they ceased to be entertaining. He stopped before the door of his own cottage, which was the fourth one from the main building and the next to the last. Seating himself in a wicker rocker which was there, he once more applied himself to the task of reading the newspaper. The day was Sunday. The paper was a day old. The Sunday papers had not yet reached Grand Isle. He was already acquainted with the market reports, and he glanced restlessly over the editorials and bits of news which he had not had time to read before quitting New Orleans the day before. Mr Pontellier wore eyeglasses. He was a man of forty, of medium height and rather slender build. He stooped a little. His hair was brown and straight, parted on one side. His beard was neatly and closely trimmed. Once in a while he withdrew his glance from the newspaper and looked about him. There's more noise than ever over at the house. The main building was called The House, to distinguish it from the cottages. The chattering and whistling birds were still at it. Two young girls, the Faraval twins, were playing a duet from Zampa upon the piano. Madame Lebrun was bustling in and out, giving orders in a high key to a yard boy whenever she got inside the house, and directions in an equally high voice to a dining room servant whenever she got outside. She was a fresh, pretty woman, clad always in white with elbow sleeves. Her starched skirts crinkled as she came and went. Farther down, before one of the cottages, a lady in black was walking demurely up and down, telling her beads. A good many persons of the pension had gone over to the Chenier Caminada in Baudelaire's Lugger to hear mass. Some young people were out under the water oaks playing croquet. Mr Pontellier's two children were there, sturdy little fellows of four and five. A quadrine nurse followed them about with a faraway meditative air. Mr Pontellier finally lit a cigar and began to smoke, letting the paper drag idly from his hand. He fixed his gaze upon a white sunshade that was advancing at snail's pace from the beach. He could see it plainly between the gaunt trunks of the water oaks and across the stretch of yellow camomile. The gulf looked far away, melting hazily into the blue of the horizon. The sunshade continued to approach slowly. Beneath its pink-lined shelter were his wife, Mrs Pontellier, and young Robert Lebrun. When they reached the cottage, the two seated themselves with some appearance of fatigue upon the upper step of the porch, facing each other, each leaning against a supporting post. "'What a folly to bathe at such an hour in such heat!' exclaimed Mr Pontellier. He himself had taken a plunge at daylight. That was why the morning seemed so long to him. "'You're burnt beyond recognition,' he added, looking at his wife, "'as one looks at a valuable piece of personal property which has suffered some damage.'" Initial impressions. It's interesting that he would take such ownership over his wife in that way, thinking that she is something that belongs to him. She is property of his. I get a feeling that that might change. 
and I'm looking forward to reading the rest of the novel. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them. So leave a comment below, or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe, or give it five stars on your episode app. Thank you. I look forward to discussing the first half of The Awakening by Kate Chopin at the next episode of Bookshook. See you then. Thank you.